0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freebie, and this week we're in Oregon. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want. 50 Feminist States. And when you hear the call, you know so well. Sisters, speak out. I know how well. Hi, everyone. Amelia here. Thanks for tuning back into the 50 Feminist States podcast. This is the final episode of season four. I honestly can barely believe it. It already happened so fast. But this was a short season. This time around, we were on the West Coast and went to California, Washington, and Oregon. Started the season in the Bay Area in California where I spoke to Beanie of Beanie's Kitchen. We talked about what it's like to be an immigrant, a woman, and a restaurant owner and chef. And she shared her experiences immigrating to the United States Working with the incubator La Cocina in San Francisco, and then opening her own restaurant that supports other women and people in her community. So, that's a really special story. I was so excited to be able to share it. And I'll give another shout out to the La Cocina cookbook that you can pick up to find the recipe for momos that Beanie talked about in that episode. After that, we headed to Washington where I spoke with Mayumi Tsutakawa from Seattle. She talked about her family's impact on the Seattle art scene. Her father's a very famous sculptor, and her brother has a lot of public art the city as well. And really, we spoke about her work as a writer and curator and the new lecture that she's been traveling around the state giving about five forgotten feminists in the history of the Pacific Northwest. This week, we're in Oregon. You listened to last episode. It was an interview with Rebecca Alexander, founder of the app AllGo. We talked about plus-size bodies, accessibility to space for fat people, and a little bit about what it's like to be a woman and a plus-size woman running a tech startup. Today's episode I am so excited about. I love every interview that I do for this podcast, but sometimes just as soon as I get in the room and sit down, I can tell that a guest and I are really going to have a great rapport. And that's exactly how I felt about Shiloh George, our guest today. Shiloh is a Southern Cheyenne Arapaho woman, a queer super fat activist, an indigenous feminist killjoy, and founder of Thlush Come Dum Dum Consulting. You'll hear me learn how to pronounce that a little later in the episode when she taught me. In our conversation for today, we talk about her Body Sovereignty Project, which is both a personal, political, and creative practice through which she has worked with her ancestors to heal her relationship to her body and reclaim it as her own. We'll hear talk about the history of her family, her native and indigenous history, and how she has had to work to cultivate a relationship to her native ancestors. And then we'll talk about her consulting practice and how she develops resources for trauma-informed care with a number of different clients. This is an amazing conversation, and I am so excited for you to hear it. Before we do that, friendly request that you go follow 50 Feminist States on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. If you open up the app, you can type that in and you'll find us, or there is a link right there in the show notes. You can click right through. We're really trying to get over that 1,000 follower threshold by the end of the season, This is the last episode of the season, so I guess that's today. We're only one or two people away as of the time I'm recording this, and if we get there, we'll host a giveaway at the beginning of March. Over the course of March, we also have some exciting things happening on Instagram for 50 Feminist States. Since March is Women's History Month, we'll be featuring a number of past guests from the episode who have really made history through their feminist activism, organizing, and art. I'm so excited to highlight their voices, particularly during a month that is about celebrating women's history, but I think also has to be about celebrating their present and the work that's being done to change the future. So if you want to see all of that, it's happening on Instagram. Again, you can find that at 50 Feminist States on Instagram. And if we hit that thousand follower mark in the next few days, we'll also be hosting a giveaway so that one or a few lucky followers can get some 50 Feminist States swag. So please go ahead, give us a follow. We'd love to connect with you on Instagram as well. For now, I'll go ahead and get right into the episode. I can't wait for you to hear what Shiloh has to say. Here she is. I am Shiloh George, and I am Southern
1: Cheyenne and Arapaho, and Scottish and Irish. And I have grown up as a guest on these lands, and so we're on uh, the homelands and territory of uh, the Middle Chinookan folks, uh, the Multnomah people in particular. As well as, it's a, as well as a shared territory with the Clackamas, more to the south, the Tualatin to the west, and the Kalapulia, the Northern Malala, and the Kalits north across the Columbia River. So this is a really Um, has been, since the beginning of time, a very rich, resourced area um, where a lot of tribes have worked um, and mingled together and have lived here for a really long time. Uh, Those folks still live here. Their descendants still live here. And in modern times, the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde is really And to my understanding, this is kind of their territory, uh, the Portland area. So we're in the Portland area um, in a colonial sense. And I guess I'll kind of go through my different kind of identities. It can help for listening to the podcast to get an idea of maybe why I have certain views that I have. So I identify um, in a like colonial context as a cis woman. Um, I'm also queer and two-spirit. And queer and two-spirit being very different concepts. In my mind, and um, I identify as super fat and a survivor of trauma. Yeah, I think that's probably more of my identities will come to the surface or things that I identify with. But those are the big, major things that I think impact who I am and the work that I do.
0: Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate like learning about the land that we're on and your history and so much. I know it's all going to come up because everything you do seems to integrate all the aspects of your identity, which. Is something I really admire and I'm excited to learn more about. I thought I would start just by asking if you could tell us about your Body Sovereignty Project. Like, it just sounds so comprehensive and exciting, and I, I would love to just learn from you what exactly it all entails and how you came to develop it.
1: Thank you. I like to talk about my Body Sovereignty Project. It is the culmination of uh, lifelong struggles with food, with my body size, with, you know, trauma and healing from trauma. And, you know, from a young age, been um, Exposed to dieting at a pretty young age, and and growing up in the '80s where there was kind of a new wave of you know the diet industry, and mm-hmm. in the '80s with jo- Jane Fonda and you know aerobics and Jazzercise and all mm-hmm. these new diets, Um, you know all the women, especially in my life, were dieting and were talking about their bodies, and so you know children absorb all of that and think mm-hmm. about it, and you know my body was, you know, looking back at photos and and things like that, my idea of what my body size was at a very young age, like 9 or 10, is actually very different from when I look at photos. Very, very different, which makes me kind of sad. Um, And as I, you know, have kind of grown up and and gone through my being an adult, I'm in my mid-40s now, you know, looking back, I can sort of see the Culmination of like abuse, um, especially around like sexual abuse when I was really young. And then the dieting, all kind of centering around not being in my body, that my body is a bad place. Mm -hmm. And also that my body doesn't belong to me. And having that feeling and my entire life and also having a society that echoes you're not good enough. You're not small enough. Mm-hmm. You're too loud. You take up too much space verbally and physically and emotionally. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I think, especially as women or feminine types of people, our um, emotions are held against us as well, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not the only one who feels these things and have experienced them. And then when I was in graduate school, about, I think it's five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I really just kind of had, I don't know, like kind of like a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like I I think all of that trauma and then my coping skills weren't really adequate anymore. And a lot of the coping skills I had learned as a child to deal with trauma weren't working anymore. So like mm-hmm. disassociation and mm-hmm. and other, other things um, to try to help cope weren't working. And I just really had... This moment, I think it was the summer after grad school, and I just didn't want to be here anymore. I was like, I can't figure out how to make this work anymore, and I'm suffering at a level that that just, I can't d- deal with it anymore. And I'm pretty smart, and I can't think my way out of it. And I've tried many, many things, and I had been in therapy for two years straight, and it wasn't getting better. I had tried antidepressants, and it wasn't helping with that particular Part of what I was dealing with, Um, and I'm not a anti a a person who thinks that those are terrible. Mm -hmm. I think you should do and use what works for you. It just wasn't working for me, Mm -hmm. and so I just had this conversation with my ancestors. And my ancestors are my I don't know a great, um, I guess protective factor and survivance factor for me, Mm -hmm. healing you know factor or people. I don't know how you want to talk about it, but that spiritual practice for me is, is integral. And so that's who I turned to when I couldn't figure out what else to do. And they were really like, you know, you can choose that that route if you want to, but you have other options available. And I just was like, I, I've, I feel like I've tried everything. So if you have ideas of how this could look different, I need you to tell me mm-hmm. um, because I'm in a really bad place. And so, you know, there was a series of, I don't know, conversations, if you want to call them that, where they were basically like, you're really creative. You need to, if you're, cause I felt like I was in this deep hole that I couldn't mm-hmm. get out of. And they're like, if you are in there, then decorate it or build a ladder and climb out or dig a tunnel. And I just felt like I don't have any energy left to do mm-hmm. any of that. And I was like, I really need your help. And that's where the sort of seeds of my body sovereignty project were planted where I said, I'm, I've hit a wall. And when I hit a wall, I really need you to come into my life and to be very clear about what I need to do next. I am willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. I just sometimes can't figure out what it is Mm -hmm. being a human being. And so maybe that's a song or a story or a conversation with someone or a dream, something to Mm -hmm. help me get past that part. Um, And that's what we agreed upon. And since then, things have really changed for me. And when I have hit a place where I don't know how to move forward with something, especially around trauma, um, then they help me with Mm -hmm. whatever it is that helps. And so my Body Sovereignty Project, the word Body Sovereignty came out of a poetry book I was reading from Mm -hmm. a two-spirit Uh, academic and artist named Quoley Driscoll, who actually lives here in Portland. And they're a friend of mine. And I read their poetry book before I knew them. Mm -hmm. And it's called Walking with Ghosts. And in Mm -hmm. one of their poems, they talk about body sovereignty. And they're a Cherokee. And I just, I think probably maybe six months prior to that was when this all culminated with my ancestors. And I said, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm talking about. So it felt really good to find a phrase that Mm -hmm. would work. And then from that, I just sort of extrapolated, this is about sovereignty. This is actually about my body and that I am as an, especially as an indigenous woman, this is mine to take care of and have Mm -hmm. the responsibility for. And it belongs to no one else, which means that anyone else's opinion is bullshit, Mm -hmm. especially if it's really negative. Mm -hmm. And how can I re-indigenize my relationship with my body and have Mm -hmm. that healing so I thought about putting it into sort of three categories. One would be my relationship with food and addressing uh, being in my body through joyful movement, mm-hmm. avoiding the, the, the word exercise yes. and uh, healing from sexual trauma. So those are the sort of like three categories, I guess, mm-hmm. of this project. And I mean it to be a project because it's always going to be ongoing. It's mm-hmm. never going to be done. And so, and I also am an artist and someone who likes to help solve problems. So the idea of having a project Mm -hmm. is always really good for me. And some people would be like, ah, I can't handle that. But for me, it works well. Mm -hmm. And so those three different things move together. They're connected together. But I just, I felt for my own the simplicity of doing this work and understanding what I'm doing, it would be easier if it was in three different categories. Mm -hmm. So one of the couple of things my ancestors told me in that was that you cannot just think about these concepts. You actually have to do something. Mm -hmm. It has to be about movement and action and verb. And, um, And so I, since then, have done things, whether they're art projects or conversations with friends or experiences or whatever that kind of tend to fit into those three categories and it might be um something in particular that addresses all three categories mm-hmm. and it's just been wonderful and I've had a lot of artwork that's come out of it. Mm. Great conversations. I've done trainings around it as well. It's very specific to me personally. So I wouldn't... Sometimes people ask me, well, how can other people do it? And and I'm like, well, it's really specific to me. It's something that I had to come up with for myself. However, people can extrapolate what they need to from mm-hmm. the ideas if they want.
0: Yeah, I really love all of that. I'm so... The ways in which I... See, have seen you sharing your personal practice of body sovereignty, I think does to a certain extent invite people in not like into what you're doing per se, but into like rethinking those things for themselves and into it's more of an, an extending an invitation to would you think of it as having their own body sovereignty projects? Like is it some or is it more an invitation to figure out what their project might even might even be like? Yeah. It's a hard, sorry. That question was not very well formulated. No,
1: I know what you mean though. (laughs) I know what you mean. I I don't really know the answer to that. I think it really, I don't know that I can tell people what they can or can't do. I mean, if body sovereignty really resonates with them, I don't know that word or that term or that idea. I think that, um, that if someone were to sort of take what I'm doing and apply it to themselves, it may not work very well because we're all different people. But I wouldn't say that that would upset me or anything. Um, but sometimes it's easier to start where somebody has been mm-hmm. to figure out where you need to go and to yeah. allow yourself that organic process. Uh, and I think that people can. Oh, she has a relationship with her ancestors. What would that be like for me? We all have ancestors, yeah. So, uh, and I don't know if people's relationships with their ancestors are similar to mine. If everybody mm-hmm. can have a relationship with their ancestors like I do not really sure about that. Yeah. So, or it could be that they have a relationship with the land or that they have a relationship with somebody that they know in their life or, a uh, an animal or a pet or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be all different kinds of things. I, I really think that I also utilize um, in a spiritual sense around being native. I think a lot about the stone people, right? Mm -hmm. And the trees. And so being connected to my ancestors is also being connected to the land. Mm -hmm. They're all connected together. So I think, you know, people just, what is it that you go to in the really hard times? Mm -hmm. Where is it that you find yourself connecting to or wishing you could connect to? And for for this piece of sovereignty and utilizing re-indigenization is in this colonial existence, it gives me a little bit of space to think about things a little differently. Mm -hmm. Like, is that thought in my head really mine Mm -hmm. or does that belong to a corporation that wants to sell me a product? Mm -hmm. Or is that part of the patriarchy? Right. Mm -hmm. Or is that part of white supremacy? Like, where is that really coming from? And then how do I pull that weed out? Mm -hmm. And plant something else. So I feel like it gives me a little bit of a bubble sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always crashing in all of this garbage, right? It's always crashing in on us. But if there's a way to have a, a little bit of protection from that, even just for a few moments, it is kind of a little bit of a respite. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think people should do what speaks to their hearts and listening to your heart is something that's really imperative, I believe, mm-hmm. for healing and for coming back to our humanity and is also sometimes really complicated for people yeah. to know what what is my heart, what is my head and what is my heart. I know for me, I've been through a lot of ceremonies that help you figure that out. And I know not everyone has access to that. So mm-hmm. It's really, uh, you know, trusting yourself, which is hard when we live in a society that likes to gaslight us all the time um, about our emotions. So I think it's finding that voice in your head, even if it's really, really, really quiet, that little kind of kernel, Mm -hmm. and then really listening hard and then doing what you can to make that voice a little bit louder. And you may find that that is actually the voice of your heart, or maybe Mm -hmm. it's the voice of your ancestors, which is maybe the same thing yeah
0: oh, I love that. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful answer, and I appreciate it. This is a kind of more personal question so if you if you don't want to talk about this, it's fine. but I'm wondering what your process has been like when you talk about reindigenization and your connection to your own ancestral heritage. Native and Indigenous people I've talked to across the U.S., there are a lot of different stories of this. Some people have grown up with a deep connection through their families. Other people have lived through such family, their ancestors have lived through such colonial violence that it takes a lot of work to regain connection to those practices. Would you be open to sharing a little bit of your story of what that's been like for you? Yeah. I think it's really important to tell the different stories
1: because it is, does vary so much. So I'm someone who did not grow up with my traditions, like being very, like, I grew up with historical trauma as an impact of not having access to culture and my biological father not knowing who we are. Um, And so we didn't really grow up with traditions. We knew we were native and I had grown up with being told we were Lakota. Mm-hmm. And when I was in my mid-20s, I was really like, I want to learn more about this. And I had tried, I you know, I'd worked with a Native person just briefly and tried to connect with her. And, you know, and she was participating in the community and had grown up in it. And I think that I, you know, and I'm also very white appearing. And I think that I didn't use the right wording With her, and I think she was just kind of like, whatever, you know, you're a wannabe, or I don't have time for this. And understandably, so I'm not upset about it or whatever. But I just was kind of like, how do I connect? So I got a hold of my grandfather's sister, Helen. And she is an enrolled tribal member. Um, and she was like, no, no, we're Southern Cheyennes. Like, <laughs> let me tell you stories. So she, I I went to see her quite a bit and she told me a lot of stories and she shared photos with me. And her mom, who's my great grandmother, was the, the person who spoke fluent Cheyenne and also spoke English and German because there were Germans that were, uh, Mennonites, mm-hmm. um, who were around our—we don't have a reservation, so land allotments in Oklahoma—and um, and she really had a really difficult life. And she went to Indian boarding school when she was from the time she was five to twelve. They married her off to like a forty-year-old white man when she was twelve. <laughs> like she just had a really, really hard life, and she died about around the age that I am now. Mm-hmm. And she did not tell her children that she was... Well, she had two sets of children from two different men. Um, The first set of children, um, they were in Oklahoma, knew who they were, enrolled and all of that. And then she had like a second... She left and she had a... She abandoned them. And she had a second family, which was my grandfather and my auntie, Helen. And did not tell them they were Cheyennes. And lived in uh, Denver and... You know, it wasn't until she passed away that all these Cheyennes came to her funeral, and uh, my auntie went and got enrolled, but my grandfather never did, and I don't know why. He passed away before I was well before I was born, and I don't know why he didn't. Um, but it, with my tribe, when there's a break in enrollment, you can't get enrolled. Mm-hmm. That's just part of their rules, mm-hmm. and and blood quantum also is another part of it. So. So talking to her was really interesting, and she really was proud to be Cheyenne. And uh, a lot of people in my family were also – and a lot of people in our tribe have been very Christianized from a really early stage of of being – having contact with settlers and, and things like that. So I have never been back to Oklahoma. It's my – my hope um, is to go back. I actually have a friend of mine who's also – uh, Southern Cheyenne, and grew up in Oklahoma, and we've kind of talked about going with her mom back there. It's something that I really like to do. So what I really have learned is connecting to the Portland's urban Indian community. Mm. I think it's almost been twenty years ago, maybe wow. a little longer, and i found I kind of found a way in um and people have been very gracious and taught me a lot of things, and I've also done my own research on my tribe and talked to Cheyennes when I come across them uh and so it's been an interesting journey of learning and learning and learning and you get small bits of information uh and I would say that for me those traditions, some traditions and some knowledge is just in our DNA. Mm-hmm. So even though when I was growing up, I didn't have access to our culture. When I got older, I realized that like I would hear a song and I'd be like, that song's familiar. Mm-hmm. How, how do I know that song? Or there would be certain things that I did, um, growing up that are specific to Cheyenne's mm-hmm. that no one ever taught me. And so, um, the ancestors have always been there for me. My ancestors have always been there. And I think going through and acknowledging there's been this break in culture for a really good reason. And at first I was kind of mad at my great-grandmother. Of like, why would you do that? Yeah. You know? But, but she really wanted us to know, think that we were white um, and didn't want us to suffer the same pains as her and the same trauma as her. And I, I understand, I think, where that comes from with her. But I would say as I've done more re-indigenization in my life and especially gone through trauma therapy, when I would imagine myself as a little girl trying to do This trauma therapy, I would always see another little girl and it was her when she was little, my great grandmother. And so I feel like all of the therapy I've done is also helps them all going to ceremonies and praying so hard also helps heal them. Like we heal each other. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like The way I see it, and and maybe other people would, other natives might disagree with me on this, but this is how I understand my life is it's a big responsibility to take on healing in that way. I'm happy to do it. It's a lot of responsibility. I carry my own medicine from my family. And yet I feel like my ancestors are there as we know you're doing this work. And thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And we're going to offer what we can to you because it's impacting them as well. Time is not linear. So I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but I feel like my great grandmother's mom did a lot of leadership work and she did a lot of work in our family and our tribe to try to make sure people weren't starving and to make a relationship with the colonial government to get food and supplies that were needed. Like she made a lot of sacrifices. She learned English to be able to have those conversations. And I feel like my life and my life's work is a little bit connected to hers. It's just that we're doing it in a different way.
0: Yeah. In a different time and a different place. And, um, I love hearing about those connections though. It's, it seems really powerful. One of the ways it seems to me that you're doing that work is through your consulting practice. So can you tell us a little bit more about, about that and how that got started and the kind of work you do?
1: Yeah, I have a business called Lush Cum Ducks Dum Dum Consulting, which means a great awakening of the heart and spirit in Chinook Wawa, which is a tried language here in this area that I'm currently living in. And I chose that name for a couple of reasons. Um, a great awakening of the heart and spirit is the work that I'm doing. It describes it very well. And I thought, how can I honor the people that are from here and also provide a way? for people who may not ever utter an indigenous language to learn it and to say it right and feel the uncomfortability like a lot of people are very uncomfortable with me showing them this is this is the wording and I give pronunciation guideline and everything and I've even I've done some work at a big hospital in town and a you know a doctor from you know a big one of the departments, a director of a department and doctor just really struggle the whole way through saying that. And I'm kind of like, you know, so I think it's important. Are people going to lean into the discomfort of that? Are they going to take it on and take the time to actually learn how to say it? Should we pause so. so you can teach me how to say it?
0: Yeah, I think I feel like we should now. So can you can you
1: walk me through the pronunciation? Yeah. I would
0: appreciate it, <laughs> and I can work through my own discomfort. No, no, you're fine.
1: No, um, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> fine. no, I think that'd be great. So the the first word um, is thloosh. flouche. Very good. It's actually the thloosh part is not an English sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then it's cum ducks, cum ducks, Floosh, cum ducks. Like, yeah, so like here, ducks. <laughs> right yes <laughs> and then dum dum like a like a sucker okay so slush Cum ducks, dum dum. Perfect. Okay. That means a great awakening of the heart and spirit.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: And uh, and it's actually the T, it's actually the D sounds are written as Ts. And so that is confusing to some people. Yeah. Um, and there's an X in there. And so it's really interesting. People look at that word and they're like, oh my goodness. And I was like, just be thankful I didn't write that out in Cheyenne because it would be like 25 letters long. And. <laughs> You know, it would be really confusing. So, uh, yeah, so it was a way just to honor people from here. And Mm -hmm. my friend Sarah is a a Grand Ronde tribal member, and that's their official language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she kind of helped me with the wording of it and was, and, you know, I I double checked with a few tribal Mm -hmm. members like, is this okay? I don't want to be appropriating anything. And they were like, no, it's a trade language, right? So it's got English in it and French and, you know, Chinookan proper Mm -hmm. words as well. Yeah, so that's the story of the name of the of the business. And so I'm coming into my third official year as a business owner, but I've been doing uh workshops and training for probably 7 years just for free. You know, you're just learning about how to do it and yeah how to speak to people and getting feedback. So I'm going into my third year as a business owner and I really feel like I'm understanding the work that I'm doing as transformative justice and organizational transformation. Mm-hmm. So I mostly work with, I didn't know that this was going to happen when I started out with this is large government agencies mm-hmm. and doing trauma-informed care practices and also racial justice work. It's all woven together. Like you said about my identities being woven into what I do, similar thing. Yeah. With this, sometimes because like trauma informed care is like a big buzzword right now, and so if that can get me in the door, and then I weave it in with like racial justice and other types of justice, and really transforming these spaces um, has been really really exciting. So I do some kind of one and done sort of trainings with different organizations, but I have one particular um, the regional government in this area um, is my number one biggest client, and they're amazing. And we really have this longer... I've been working with them for a year and a half doing trauma-informed care and other types of work within their agency. And it's been amazing. And it was really my dream was to work with an organization and build a relationship and see how these practices are really implemented in the longer term and what are some of the struggles and challenges and blocks and how do we get around that. And it's
0: allowing me the opportunity to do it. And I'm just
1: so loving it yeah
0: can you share a little bit of what trauma-informed care means and like what those practices might look like because I, I recognize it like as a sort of buzzword but I, I hear it in everything from like yoga to healthcare to like, I would just love to hear your take on, on what that means in, in your work so you know it, it's one
1: of those things where we need to acknowledge how deeply impacted we all are by trauma not everybody, I would say a lot of people have experienced trauma. Not everyone has lasting impacts of trauma. That's really important. How, However, a lot of people do have lasting impacts of trauma. And trauma can also be, um, and, and talking about psychological trauma is what I mean. So, you know, there are... People think of trauma, sometimes they think of like a car accident or a natural disaster or someone who passes away. It can be absolutely traumatic. And those are kind of one-time things. But when we're looking at, or what I'm really interested in is looking at systems um, and looking at trauma that happens in the childhood where you cannot escape, usually you're abusers, you are there and you're coping with however you can cope, it really impacts Your how your physical health and your psychological health and spiritual health through the the entirety of your lifespan. So, and we live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. um, and doesn't want to acknowledge the impact of that. Racism is also trauma, and it never ends for people who are experiencing it. Mm -hmm. It is ongoing. There is no post for post traumatic stress disorder. There is no post anything. So. Looking at those different mechanisms of trauma and those different experiences in particular where it's just ongoing toxic stress. Mm -hmm. How do we create systems and experiences for people to get the resources that they need, to get the help that they need? How do we create welcoming environments? How do we, when we're offering services or when someone's planning transportation for a city, Mm -hmm. how do you recognize communities who have been pushed out and gentrified? How do you recognize the people that you never ask for their opinion Mm -hmm. about a light rail coming through their neighborhood? Like what does that neighborhood actually need? Maybe they don't need light rail. Maybe they need more stores because they live in a food desert. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about not me and my experience, my lived experience, but what is the, the people who are experiencing the most marginalization, the most lack of access to resources, mm-hmm. not from a place of pity, but from a place of how do we center those needs and lift them up? Because it lifts up everybody else's needs, too. Mm-hmm. And so doing trauma-informed approaches and practices, for me, is comes from relationships first. Some people approach it as we need to look at policies, practices, and procedures. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yet to make the, in my mind, to make this really transformative work is really looking at relationships and the relationship you have with yourself, as well as the relationship you have with others. And that people, to be motivated to do the work that needs to be done to transform these systems, I feel like people really need to find a personal connection to the work. Mm -hmm. And so I am really interested in relationships and having that, personal transformation, part of the training, part of the conversation, because trauma-informed care can also become a vocabulary, a common vocabulary for people in an agency, right? Mm -hmm. To say, this is what I'm concerned about, this, and they use certain vocabulary, right? And then the other people who have been trained are like, oh, I totally see what you're saying. Or I understand what you're, the wording you're using, but I don't understand maybe your vision of it. Can you explain it to me a little bit more? Right. So it has a shared vision, a shared vocabulary that creates a really powerful foundation for doing deeper equity work. I believe that you do racial, especially racial equity. You know, when I go into a lot of different organizations, they're like, we're working on a racial equity strategy, or we really want to center, um, you know, the, the needs and the experiences of people of color, but really don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Like some people are like, we've got the concepts down, but what does it mean to really implement it? Yeah. And so for me, trauma informed practice has become one of those ways to help people actually implement it mm-hmm. and to call out and say, you have made this, um, clear, in your organization that you want to do this work so either you do it or you or I'm calling bullshit on it Yeah. and that you just want it in a binder on a bookshelf mm-hmm. then just have it be in a binder in a bookshelf mm-hmm. right just yeah. be honest about where you're at and yeah. your motivation like I'm not interested in performance mm-hmm. so if you really want to do the hard work then let's do it mm-hmm. um, and I feel like Every organization is at a kind of a different place on that. Um, And yeah. So I guess that's how I see trauma-informed practices is how do we serve folks? How do we listen? I don't know. know. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, I think the way that when you drew the distinction between like a trauma-informed approach that's really about policies and procedures, and you had another P in there, but like...
1: Policies, practices, and procedures, which is legit. It needs to get
0: done. Yeah. But I think... Also, like the way you emphasize the personal nature of this and how relationships have to be built, I think is so important. It had so many connections firing in my mind. They're just related to the idea of transformative justice, that communities hold the answers and the power to transform things. And it just takes the people like yourself to create the space in which that becomes possible. And I mean, and that work is invaluable because it is so hard, I think. In our society, to come together in a way where you can trust enough to have accountability, and uh, I'm so excited! I I cannot wait to see where your work will be in two years. If that's if this is how it's evolving already, I'm I'm so excited to see what comes next.
1: Me too! Yay! All
0: right, well, thank you so much. Those are all the questions I have. I really appreciate your time. And- Thanks
1: for the opportunity to visit and to talk. I
0: really appreciate it. You're awesome. So are you. Thanks so much to Shiloh for this amazing conversation, and thanks to you for tuning in to season four of the 50 Feminist States podcast. We've now been to 28 states and produced over 40 episodes, of conversations with feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice and queer liberation. I'm so proud of this project, and I hope that you'll consider supporting it by following us on Instagram, subscribing to our newsletter, perhaps even making a donation on our website. In the next few weeks, I'll be headed back out on the road to record interviews for season five, which is going to take us across the Southwest United States. Shortly thereafter, we'll have our final Kickstarter campaign to fundraise to produce the last episodes of this 50-state project. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Until next time, I'll see you on the road.
1: 50 50 estados feministas 50 Feminist Day
0: 50 Feminist Day episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 states. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.